Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Shattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with David Wallen, a clinical psychologist, on the necessity of the therapist's self-revelation. So my guest today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast is Dr. David Wallen. He is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Albany, California. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard and received his doctorate from the Wright Institute in Berkeley. He's been practicing, teaching, and writing about psychotherapy for more than three decades. Attachment and Psychotherapy, his most recent book, is presently being translated into a dozen languages. And he is also the co-author with Stephen Goldberg of Mapping the Terrain of the Heart, Passion, Tenderness, and the Capacity to Love. Dr. Wallen has lectured on attachment and psychotherapy in Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Canada, and all throughout the United States. His website is attachmentinpsychotherapy.com. So I first learned of Dr. Wallen when I bought his book, I think pretty soon after it was released, uh, his 2007 book, Attachment in Psychotherapy. And I think one of the things that those of us who practice from an attachment-based orientation find is that there's lots and lots and lots about theory and lots and lots and lots um, about what Bowlby wrote and research about babies and the strange situation and various classifications. And we even now have the adult attachment interview in terms of looking at adult attachment classifications. But in terms of actually what does understanding that mean in individual psychotherapy with individuals? The theory, the research, all of that, how do we operationalize that in our work with our clients? And Dr. Wallen's book really was so helpful in terms of understanding that, thinking about that, conceptualizing that. So after I read his book, I, of course, looked up, you know, where could I see him speak? Where could I go to any lectures? Does he have any other books? And I was fortunate uh, to be able to attend all-day workshops with him several times in the Chicago area. And one might have been in St. Louis. I'm trying to remember. It's one of the wonderful things about working for Chaddock, where I work, is we are able to attend various trainings it truly is a learning organization. So I know I saw him at least twice and I uh, behaved like a, a groupie when I saw him. I uh, was so excited to meet him and talk to him and get him to sign my book. So I'm walking on air in terms of being able to interview him today. So I think all of you are really going to enjoy this podcast and I look forward to sharing it with everyone. And so, so that makes me think about, you know, as you're speaking, it just mm -hmm. causes me to wonder, I don't have a way to know, but how, how many therapists out there are, are really working through this and considering this at the depth we need to be, and uh, I'm, I'm 
uh, I'm wondering about that. And mm-hmm. I know it's something mm-hmm. you're trying to, to That's right. help people yes. understand. Absolutely. Uh, what's your sense of the, that overall? Yeah, I mean, my sense is that working in the way that I'm interested in working and the way that I teach, um, I think it's a... I think it's unfamiliar to many people. And even when someone is very familiar with these ideas, like I am, it can be difficult to implement them. I mean, you know, I, I, um, you know, it's sort of a, you know, a, a truism, you know, almost a cliche that, you know, the therapist has an unconscious too just like the patient. Yes. But you know, the interesting, you know, one of the things about the unconscious is that it's hard to become conscious of it. And so, <laughs> yes. so you know, a- again, even somebody like me or people who I've worked with who are very uh, aware of these complicated undercurrents that can, can constrain us and limit our therapeutic effectiveness, it, nonetheless, it can be hard to mobilize the understanding in a way that really changes the way we operate. Yes. But it's not, it's not impossible. But I, I guess I'm just trying to respond uh, to your question. And, and, you know, I mean, I think the first barrier is that most, I think many, many therapists don't think in these terms. You know, they learn... In, who know, you know, they learn EMDR, or they learn right. you know, the Gottman method, or they learn right. EFT, or... I think know, therapists out of the psychoanalytic tradition... Are a little more this. interested. But attachment, attachment theory has become so popular yeah. and mainstream that people that don't come out of that tradition are right. very involved with it like you're like you're saying I'm I'm, right. I'm doing attachment oriented EMDR or I you know I'm, I'm doing couples work uh, uh, I'm a, but, I, but I, I think what you're saying and what I am inclined to say over and over and over again is that you know therapists make the mistake of assuming that if they learn how to employ a certain approach that they're just going to be able to do it and they'll be effective. And it's my sense that regardless of the, the approach, that the therapist's own history and attachment patterning will have a very gripping and constraining sort of influence. And that really the only, you know, the only way I have found to loosen the grip of that influence. I mean, partly, obviously, personal therapy helps, consultation helps. Uh, but w- when we're alone with a patient in the office, it seems to me that primarily what helps is paying attention to this whole notion of enactments, enactments of transference, counter-transference, if you will. In other words, the sort of mini psychodramas that are constantly, uninterruptedly unfolding between two partners and a couple. I mean, a therapeutic couple or any other couple. Yes. And um, it seems to me that the way to loosen the grip of the straitjacket is to pay for the 
for each partner, but really it's the therapist's job and not so much the patient's. Right. Sometimes the patient leads the way. Right. But it, it, what the therapist needs to do is to, to essentially be curious about, attentive to what he or she is actually doing in interaction with the patient. You know, it might be uh, making a lot of very smart interpretations uh, or bending over backwards to be empathic or uh, setting limits or talking about books or making jokes or being silent. I mean, you know, there's probably an infinite number of different things we can be doing. And, and so it, it seems to me like the first thing to do is to be paying attention to what it is that we're doing. Yes. Uh, because it seems like that sort of attention can function as a, a, a sort of a way in because we're noticing, oh, this is my side of the the interaction. This is my side of the enactment, the mini psychodrama, as I call it. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily know the patient side as well as I know my own, but once I identify my own, you know, then I can start to, you know, be silently curious about it. I can wonder, well, what does it mean to me that I'm just, uh, you know, biting my tongue rather than saying what's really on my mind or, uh, or what might it mean to the patient that I'm not saying what's on my mind or, you know, and then another question, what are my motivations? What's going on inside me psychologically such that I'm not uh, saying what's on my mind or doing what I actually want to do with this particular patient? And it seems to me that when we ask those questions, what am I doing? What's the meaning to me and to the patient of what I'm doing? What are my motivations for doing what I'm doing? It's like then we have a whole menu of options with regard to how we might intervene. I mean, uh-huh. we could talk about our experience, we could use our experience as a, a way of uh, maybe empathizing a bit more with the patient's experience. Um, I mean, I, I think about a, you know, a session I had today, which uh-huh. I think is a, a pretty good example. I mean, I'd been aware with this particular woman patient for probably the last couple sessions that I wanted to talk about the fact that for whatever reasons, I wasn't saying to her, you know, I'm feeling sort of frustrated at at the way in which we are just, you know, kind of jumping from one thing to another and you're getting, you know, you tend to get very, very emotional and then I feel like I have to follow you wherever the emotion leads, but we don't seem to kind of get anywhere together in terms of understanding your experience more deeply or allowing you to be more flexible or to know about yourself or to have a more intimate relationship. So I'm aware of this the last couple of sessions. And then today we had just a a totally, you know, familiar kind of session where you know, she's moving from one thing to another and with considerable frequency, she can't get very far before she starts feeling over overwhelmed with tears and what have you. And so probably two thirds of the way through the session. 
And it wasn't like I'd been planning to intervene in any particular way. I just knew that I needed to be paying attention to what are the two of us doing together? What are we mm -hmm. enacting, if you mm -hmm. will? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so at a certain point, I, I said something like, you know, I'm not sure how you're going to respond to this, but I, 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 I just feel I need to say that I'm aware, you know, in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of having a sense of, and it's at a pretty low level, but having a sense of frustration because it just seems like we're moving from one thing to another. And, you know, with considerable frequency, it seems like it's, you know, you, you, you have very strong feelings about what we're talking about. And so it's, it's almost like we can't. And I said, and I mean, there was, she had given me an opening because she had said that earlier, uh, maybe yesterday or over the weekend, her uh, partner, another woman, her wife actually, uh, had said to her something like, you know, it just seems like, you, you know, you go for the angst you know, whatever you can get upset about, it just seems like it's, yeah. it's really hard for you not to get upset. And, um, and, I, and so I said, you know, I, I have a sense that part of what I'm noticing in terms of like the way in which you're kind of overwhelmed by your feelings and, and, and then we can't kind of seem to get anywhere with what you're feeling. Um, it seems like maybe I'm noticing something that's sort of akin to what your partner uh, was talking about. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, so I laid that out and said, you know, what's, and this is, I think, is a really, really important question. I mean, I love to say, um, what's it like for you? Like, that's the form of the question. Mm -hmm. so what's it like for you, you know, to have me just say what I said. I mean, what's it like for you to hear that? And, you know, and, and then we were kind of off to the races. And, you know, she was saying, well, you know, I just, I just start to feel like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm like, I'm not a good patient. Mm. You know, if I, if I can't kind of get anywhere. <laughs> she said, I think she may have said something like, yeah, I know this isn't what you meant, but it, it's, it's hard not to, you know, go into that shame place. Right. right. And, and it's like, and I was, you know, I was like, wow, that's like, and that's also what you were talking about earlier in the session. Yes. You know, how, you know, when you get upset, whether it's frustrated or sad, you just start to feel a little of that. And the next thing you know, you're very self-critical. You know, you shouldn't be feeling this, shouldn't be feeling that. In other words, we had a lot to talk about. And essentially what I wound up saying uh, as the session was winding up or winding down was, um, you know, it just seems like we're beginning a conversation. You know, obviously this isn't the end of the conversation. It's a work in progress. And, and I, I said, you know, it's kind of interesting to me and maybe we can think about it together, but like this pattern of you are being so easily overcome and you just said, you don't like being overcome in this way by your intense feelings. 
we've been working together for quite a while, but we haven't, or I haven't, because really it's my responsibility, I haven't kind of noticed, oh, that's something that you and I might work on because you seem to feel like it gets in your way. And I guess I'm having a sense that it gets in our way at times. Mm. Um, so yes. to be continued. Yeah, so so I guess what I'm thinking about, you know, um, just to give listeners a little hook to hang sure. this on, it, you're, you're, you're moving to the other piece of this, of um, the necessity for the therapist self-revelation. Exactly. And exactly. how and when, because I think some listeners are like, what? You can't say that to a patient. Right. <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they're in this, uh, mindset of, you know, you, you're just kind of neutral or, or something. Right, um, right. And so uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit more sure. about your rationale for that. Because yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you also talked yeah. about this in your book that, that yeah. now it's complex and it has to be done carefully, but it's an important thing to do at certain moments. So, absolutely. absolutely. Um, you know, there's a guy. Um, uh, do, do you know the name Philip Bromberg? Anyway, he, he's a uh, kind of a relational psychoanalytic uh, writer. Okay. Uh, who was actually my consultant for a, a couple of years recently. No longer, but for a couple of years. Anyway, um, he has this great uh, therapeutic bon mot, which is, he says, the therapist's personal feelings or the therapist's feelings as he relates to the patient are not his private property. Ah. And he says it's because the therapist's feelings make up one half mm. of a whole that is comprised of the patient's feelings and the therapist's feelings. Right. Uh, the patient's experience and the therapist's experience, but these make up a whole. Yeah. And neither the therapist's feelings, the therapist's experience, nor the patient's experience has been effectively articulated. Mm. And, you know, this is in keeping with my own little therapeutic aphorism, which is what can't be spoken will tend to be evoked in others, enacted with others, or embodied. And um, so the idea is essentially, um, it, it, there's a variety of ideas that are kind of in the mix here for me. Um, you know, one idea is that the therapist on his, her, or her own, generally, it seems to me, can't, adequately make sense of her or his own experience when interacting with the patient without the help of the patient. I mean, the joke is the problem with self-analysis is the counter-transference. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like we, we can only go so far with, you know, in our own minds making sense of our experience uh, because of our unconscious yes. and because of the fact that you know, our experiences has root, have roots in um, 
you know, motivations and so mm -hmm. on that they were not aware of. Maybe they yes. maybe they're pre-verbal or God knows what. Right. Um, so we need to enlist the patient as a a collaborator, a partner in thought, a kind of, you know, almost a kind of consultant. Two heads are better than one. So I, I think for the therapist to articulate his experience is very desirable. It 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 diminishes the probability that the patient will experience the therapist as a riddle. You know, I don't know what's right. going on inside you. You know, right. I can make all sorts of guesses. And one thing about um, insecure and disorganized attachment is that people in those states of mind, ways of being, uh -huh. tend to misinterpret in a very, with a negative bias, the nonverbal experience of other people. So I think yes. this is a reason to make one's experience verbal rather than letting it operate as a riddle that the patient is going to probably make a rather negative interpretation of. Mm -hmm. And another way to say this is that therapists, I think all of us, by virtue of, you know, what neuroscientists call the mirror neuron system, we're constantly simulating inside ourselves the experience of other people. So mm -hmm. it's not like our patients are completely in the dark. But the and also neuroception, because they are, uh, we're both assessing for safety between each other all the time. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and so if the therapist, like me, if I'm feeling frustrated and I'm not saying anything about it, the patient is probably picking up, you know, David's not happy with me. I don't know what it's about. Maybe he doesn't want to work with me anymore. Maybe... Uh, he doesn't like me. Maybe there's something I did that was really off-putting. I don't know. But it's just not useful. You know, going back to what Bowlby suggested, you know, the therapist's role is analogous to that of the mother who functions as a secure base. How can we be a secure base if the patient is left to wonder about all sorts of um, you know, so-called negative feelings that we might be mm -hmm. having in relation to the patient. Mm -hmm. That that we can't. That the patient. That's that's undermining our uh, the patient's experience of us as a secure base. So, putting this stuff into words, I think, is enormously important. I mean, you know, I could go on and on, but you know, one way to say it is that, you know, there's some neuroscience and other research which suggests that unarticulated, unverbalized, unworded experience is experience that's more difficult to manage. And so it always seems to me advantageous if what is not always, I mean, it's hard to make those kinds of blanket generalizations, but I think as a rule, it's better that things should be more explicit rather than less explicit. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so because then we've got something that we can talk about together yes um, yeah yeah it's interesting because another thing i'm thinking about as you're talking when we look at infant parent psychotherapy you know yes. child parent psychotherapy one of the mantras is the the um relationship is your client not the mother not the baby but the relationship but somehow nice. we sort of lose it uh totally that's a really that's it's that's, a shame, right? 
it really is the same. It really, I never thought of that. But it really, thank you for that. That because it really is, there really is a way in which that's true, and um, you know, I think that attitude is probably very, very helpful as a sort of guideline. That perspective, it, it seems like a real guideline in terms of thinking about the fact that nothing, virtually nothing, that goes on in the, in the therapy relationship is the product of the patient alone, nor of the therapist alone. It's co-created. You know, we make the relationship, and if the relationship is the primary therapeutic intervention, we better therapist and patient together do what we can to as much as possible create a, a relationship that's safe that's conducive to our uh, knowing each other as well as we mm. possibly can mm, yes and 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 so on um yeah i mean there's obviously there's a lot more that could be said but yes uh, yes yeah. thank you for that insight <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know i need to pay attention to time here um yeah. uh because I could talk to you for uh, I know hours and hours. <laughs> um, but so I just was, you know, a, a final thing about this aspect. Yeah. Uh, do you get flack about this idea, uh, or do you feel like from you, whom? When you're training with your students or with groups, or uh, yeah. because of the way you speak about it, and it just it does make so much sense. Yeah. And then there's another part of me that's like, oh, you know, what if I reveal this? And I'm yeah, like, oh, no, yeah. you know, that yeah. wasn't helpful. Okay. I, have, I think I have a way of responding to that. Okay. I, mean, okay. this was, I mean, the first response is people generally welcome this perspective. Yes. Uh, because it's real. It yes. gets, it's, it's not bullshit. You know, I think yes. it speaks speaks to people's experience. Yeah. Um, and then the other thought I have, I guess I'm responding to your, oh God, what if I reveal such and such? Uh, um, I, like I remember a conversation I had with my consultant, Philip Bromberg, where I was saying, you know, this patient of mine is just really boring. And I don't know quite how to deal with that. I mean, I, I certainly can't say to him, you know, I find you boring. And Bromberg said, yes, you can. He said, he said, the thing is, you have to say it all. In other words, uh, and what he meant was that as therapists, we need to be, you might say, guided by two principles that may seem to be uh, conflicting, but they don't really have to be. Um, and the one principle is the patient's emotional safety must always be a priority. And the other principle is the therapist's authenticity mm. is a necessary feature of most effective psychotherapies. Mm -hmm. And so we've got the prioritizing of safety, the patient's safety, and on the other hand, that the safety that the patient meet the therapist as a real, a genuine, a whole person. Mm. And what Bromberg says is that the balancing act 
safety, authenticity is achieved by the therapist, as he puts it, finding the right words. I mean, I think of it as much a matter of finding the right stance as finding the right words. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea is that when you're talking to, you know, like when I was talking to my patient about my frustration today, I was also thinking about, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking explicitly, but my attention to the patient's feeling of safety is always in the foreground, along with my desire to communicate something of my personal experience. And so the necessity then is to find a way to articulate what I want to say in a fashion that's respectful, both of the need for safety and the need for, you know, the therapist's authenticity. Um, and so, you know, you find ways to say it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm really, you know, so what I said to the patient was something like, you know, I, I you know, I'm a little concerned how you're going to hear what I'm about to say. And, um, you know, I, I think there's something in the tone of voice, in my tone of voice, the words I choose, the tentativeness, um, and the follow-up, what is it like for you to hear what I've just said? I think all of that is part of a context that makes room for my authenticity in a way that's safe. Yeah. And, and hopefully, I mean, today it turned out to be therapeutic, uh, you know, unquestionably therapeutic, useful. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's a nice way to kind of wrap up and thinking about okay. that balance. Terrific. But- yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I, I'm very, I'm very grateful to you for that. I'm, I'm, pr- I've probably heard that before. That idea that it's not the, you know, that basically you're the therapist to the relationship. You're not the therapist to, I guess you said the mother or the child. Is right. That right. Yes. Yes. Right. And as therapists, as an individual therapist to an indiv- for an individual patient, something similar does seem to me to be true. That yeah. You know, Keeping our eye on the the status of the relationship, the safety, the productiveness, the warmth, the rapport in the relationship. That's yes. That's kind of our commitment, or should be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah terrific. Yeah. Well, great talking to you today. Yes, thank yeah. you so much. I I know you you're a very busy person, and and, and I'm less and less busy. <laughs> well, I'm gonna get you up for another uh, edition. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've definitely been getting less busy in the last, especially in the last uh, year. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, good. Uh, I already put a little teaser out. I have a a an attachment-based therapist big Facebook group and mentioned we'd be talking today. There was already lots of buzz and excitement. Oh, terrific. Oh, yeah, yeah, so very good. Okay, well, great talking to you, and, you know, maybe we can do this again in the future. Yeah.
Yes, wonderful. I, I really wish you the very, very best of luck with your book. That's so Thank exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate Working it. Working with the difficult child, is that Yeah, it? yeah. I'll send you just the cover. And you can Marvelous. So, yes. Thank Marvelous. you so much. Great. Okay. Well, it's, it's exciting to be. <laughs> to be interacting with a potentially best-selling author. Oh yeah, we'll see. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, well we'll talk. We'll talk again. Okay, bye bye. Okay, be well. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.